Kate Feld. That's right. Yes, Kate Feld. Here I am. New person on the podcast. You are a lecturer in journalism. I'm a lecturer in journalism, yeah. At Salford University. I used to say Salford for ages, and then I keep getting corrected. I don't That's not relevant. You are. You work for the Manchester Literature Festival, as listeners will know. You write creative nonfiction. You have a creative nonfiction night called The Real Story. Have I missed anything? No, that's pretty that's much all it, people right? need oh, to the know. Oh, the... Ma- is the Manchester Chisel even a thing anymore? No. It's not. It's dead. I've stopped doing it. Right. Yep. Guardian's culture goodness. For, fuck the Guardian. I don't care what you say. We're gonna, I'm going to close it down anyway. Oh, it's a blog. Yeah. They had their day. See, that's what I think. Yeah. I had, um, what's the, uh, Emslec- I can't even re- pronounce the magazine. Emslexia? Ms. Oh, Mislexia. Mislexia, yeah. They contacted me and asked me for a, a, an article on blogging. And I said... I went back to them and, and said, okay. Um, they sent me all these questions about blogging and stuff. And all the questions that were actually about blogging, I just said, well, blogging is dead. There are so many better <laughs> people to ask I know, than you. I don't know why Jeez, they ask me. Naomi Frisbee, yeah. who has, like, the best <laughs> book blog ever. Yeah. Well, I, I know. So I, I turned it and made it about a podcast. And uh, they asked me all these questions, and I answered them in... Also, you're a man. What's wrong with that? Well, Mislexia is for women. Like, is it's it? a women's magazine. Oh, right. Why yeah, it's, why? For, it's for women to write. It doesn't mean men can't write for it, can they? Can they I've, I've never seen a man writing for it before. Well, I don't know if I wrote it. was an interview more than anything. I think the woman that sent me questions, it was supposed to be this thing, and I wrote these, all the answers to all these, these questions about blogging. Basically, blogging is dead, so they didn't use any of it. They used about two little sections of it, um, yeah. little quotes. I've not even seen the article, actually. You're kind of taking taking them off at the knees there if, if you're just going to... Well, yeah, but <laughs> the thing is I, I'm incapable of lying, and there was no money involved, so... You're totally capable of lying. Okay, I am. I can. I can totally lie. That was a lie. Yeah, I'm very good at lying, actually. But, yeah, so they didn't... They used a couple quotes about it, but... And then someone else came. The, um... Oh, what's that? W-O-W festival Oh, the words, writing on the wall. Writing on the wall. They said they In wanted Liverpool. me to do... I talk on blogging as well. And I thought, why well, I don't even I don't even have a blog. I've got a I put podcast episodes on my blog. I don't actually really do blogging stuff well, anymore. Does word, anybody? No, you have a WordPress site. Yeah. Now that's that used to be called a blog, but now WordPress mm. is just a web platform. Yeah. Where you can make a website. Yeah. Um, it's not really called a blog anymore. Yeah. It's weird, I get really odd emails through this podcast. Really strange. Well at least you're getting emails. Yeah. You know, that's good, at isn't all. It? <laughs> yeah, why am I complaining? Yeah. yeah. No, I would complain even if I w- wasn't... Yeah, I'd be complaining if I didn't get any. Yeah. And I'm complaining because I am getting You're contact. getting the wrong kind of emails. Why even so? Why am I complaining now? People will stop sending me emails. Send me emails that need, but send, need to do send stuff for money. send emails that ask you to do things about podcasting. Yeah, and for cash, because I will totally do it. Yeah. 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 Ask me what I'm reading. What are you reading, Rob? I'm reading... Uh, I'm glad you asked. I'm reading uh, Reservoir 13 by uh-huh. John McGregor because I like fiction, unlike you. And uh, he's coming on the podcast. I did an interview with him already, and it was very good. That's going to be the beginning of December. And I spoke to Megan Hunter, who you like. Yes, I loved lot. her book. Yep. Yeah. And so, yeah, Adele Stripes hit today... I've done, oh, do you know, I've done all the interviews for this year. Um, I'm full up, and I can't remember what the other ones... Oh, yeah, Joanna Jen Ashworth. Kave- Joanna Cavena. Yeah. And uh, Jen Ashworth and Richard V. Hurst. Those are the next ones. Um, what's the last novel you re- read, then? Oh, um... Uh, wow, that says a lot. Well, no, I read that Mirror Soldier Signal by Dorothy Norris, okay. because I was doing... Is that a novel? I thought she was a... Short story writer. She does write short stories, but she started out as a novelist. She wrote three novels in Danish, and then yeah. um, someone told her they thought she'd be good at short fiction, and she was. She told them something like, "Fuck off! <laughs> short fiction is the worst form." Mm. Um, and then she tried it, and turns out she loves is it. amazing at it and yeah. loves it. I think that would be the, like the best short story writers are the ones who don't like it. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know either. Like, I don't actually read that many novels. That's so funny. I'm not, I like, I mean, I, I read them. I don't understand that at all. I read them, but 
I, I'm just not creatively interested in writing a novel. Yeah, I get that. But like, I don't understand why you wouldn't read them. I do read them, but it's not what I'm excited about reading right now. I've read mm. them my whole life, and I yeah. will continue to read them. So you just lied to me. You are reading them. I mean, I do read them. But if I have my own free time right now... You'd I'm, read creative nonfiction essays? You'd re- read essays? I'd read poetry. Okay, fine. Or short prose, mm-hmm. like weird lyric prose pieces. I was up last night reading this Japanese... Yeah, okay. Um, this Japanese essay is called Basho, who does this thing where he writes... Um, prose and then all of a sudden breaks into like three lines of poetry and okay. kind of inter- so that's the kind of shit I want to read you know that's so not the shit I want to read at all <laughs> it's the shit that almost <laughs> no one wants to read except me but what's the appeal okay because it's beautiful writing beautiful yeah writing. is it because you've got no time it's no it's not because I've got no time <laughs> but we, we all know I have no time yeah um, I know you don't but it's not because I have no time even if I t- had tons of time I would just read more of this stuff Really? Really? Genuinely really? See, I, it's, it's hard for me to even believe that, because fiction is so good. Listen, fiction's great, but I prefer short fiction right yeah. now. I, re- I still read short stories and love them. Yeah, I've never, I've never ever in my life got into short stories, and I've tried a few times. Um, I've read a few of Tanya's, obviously, yeah. and I like, I mean, I like them. But I would ne- the only reason, I would never choose them. I would never go to a bookshop and go, ooh collection of short stories that's what I want to read oh my god so but I, it seems like a really Manchester thing as well short stories it seems like everybody I know reads them except the reason, me the reason that short stories are such a big deal in Manchester is because of the four minute five minute slot that you get at most open mics here mm. Manchester's literature scene certainly on the performance and live lit side is very much has grown around this culture of performing fiction at open mics mm-hmm and so that's why it's a city of flash fiction writers. Yeah, see, here's the other thing for me. I, I think there's something lost when you write something for the stage. Well, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> this is why we belong on the same pod- yeah, podcast. We I couldn't mean, be more different. You, I, I'm not saying you write something for the stage, mm. but having a place, you know, for people who don't have a writer's group or aren't in an MA, yeah. you know, for whatever reason, um, actually, an open mic night provides... Instant feedback, a community of writers. Yeah, but a lot of feedback kind is. Of deadline, yeah, you know? it, it's instant feedback, but it's, it's largely friendly. Yeah, and you could argue that that's next to useless. Uh, but someone, a cynic, would say that. Uh, but you know, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, at least when I started performing short fiction uh, at, at live nights in Manchester, we would talk about stories and stuff like right. that. Right. You know, it was useful yeah, yeah. to me. Yeah. So, I don't know. How did the real story go? I c- I'm sorry I couldn't make it. Oh, it went really well. It yeah. looked good. Unfortunately, one of the readers of Anas Matanda um, couldn't make it at the last minute. Oh, right. But we had... Uh, Kit Duvall. Kit Duvall, Andrew McMillan. Andrew McMillan, and Gina Moore Barrett, and they all read incredibly well. Mm. Nathan, we got Nathan to read. Did he? His, yeah, he wasn't What's his fiction like? Well, no, he didn't read fiction. Oh, of course he didn't. It's a cri- Sorry. It's an what essay was his collection. essay like? His essay was great. He wrote an essay about... Uh, what it means to be working class, how you mm-hmm. how you kind of determine whether or not you're working class. Or I can't believe he put one of his own essays in that collection. But it was an introductory essay. Okay. It was like the word from the publisher. Right. And that was something that he obviously had to think about a lot uh-huh. because he must have had... We're talking about Know Your Place. Yeah, Know Your way. Place, working, uh, the working class... Uh, what's, what's the subtitle? I was going to say working class stories, but it's not. It's, it's the... No, no, no. The something of the working class. Essays on the working class by the working class. Mm -hmm. So Nathan would have had a lot of conversations with people where they're saying, well, I'd like to write something for this, but I don't know if I'm really working class, you know? Mm. I would say the same about Andrew McMillan. His dad's certainly working class. Is is he? I don't remember. I should... Well, he identifies himself as working class. He wrote an amazing essay, actually. I shouldn't say that because he's been on the podcast. And the thing is, as soon as someone comes on the podcast and I interview them... I forget completely what they said like a month later. Yeah. That's probably good. Yeah. Yeah. Moving on, man. There's new <laughs> people to talk to. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> what, uh, what, are you, what are you doing today? Uh, today I'm going to another literature festival event. I've yeah. just been lecturing uh, at my university. Mm-hmm. And uh, now I'm going to go see 
uh, three writers, Joanna Walsh, Sally mm-hmm. Rooney, and Lisa McInerney. This is the one you talked about in our last podcast that you're really looking forward to. Yeah. Three Irish novelists. Well, Joanna Walsh, I wouldn't say is a novelist. She, she does mostly short stuff. Of course um, she does. That's why you, you're interested. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sally Rooney wrote a really interesting novel, Conversations with Friends, mm-hmm. um, which has caused, caused a lot of conversations. Why? Um... It's incredibly, incredibly well written. Okay. Well, uh, that doesn't cause conversation. Well, I don't know. But it also deals with uh, some interesting topics. Like what? It's kind of, it's about a romance between a very young uh, university student and Please don't a say much a older, no, a much older guy who's okay. married. Um, I've read that story before. So have I. Mm. Um, so I guess what I would want to ask her is, and interestingly, uh, the story that she wrote for Granta, Granta had an issue of all Irish writing, and she wrote one of the best stories in it, and it was, again, about a young woman with a much older guy. Um, mm. So if I had her right here, I would say, so mm-hmm. what is it about this setup that interests you? Because this is actually fairly traditional. Um, yeah. And I think she does some things that kind of try and subvert that, like by, at least in conversations with friends, making the guy sort of very passive and the the younger character more assertive but you know at the end of the day it's still the same kind of basic framework mm-hmm. um mm. and so but you know it's kind of in a feminist context yeah so it's interesting i went on the uh, thinkers and what is it thinkers and drinkers pub crawl thing last night so what did you what did you drink of it rob oh my god did you, <laughs> did you really just say that <laughs> Let's pretend yep. that didn't happen. <laughs> that's where my that's where my humor's at right yeah. now, Rob. That's the level well, that you can expect from that's me. That's fine. Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> um, Bringing down the tone. That, are you kidding? It can't get down any lower than it is already, <laughs> to be frank. Um, yeah, it was good. It was... Uh, it, the chat was amazing. And uh, the uh, what's the woman that runs it? Br- Brindle? Bindle? Catherine? Oh, God, that's bad. I need to find out what her name is. I'll put it in in the edit. She, she was great. <laughs> That'll be subtle. Yeah. You're like editing Catherine Bindle <laughs> or whatever it is. It's I'm close. I'm damn close. I'm sure it's something like that. Anyway, she's great. Uh, and Hindle. She's Suzanne Hindle. Suzanne Hindle. I wasn't even close. <laughs> no, but I got Suzanne. it. It somehow came to me. Very good. Yeah, no, she was. she's great, and she's a lot of fun. And really interesting stuff. Like, she introduced me to... The Manchester Man. I, I know you'll already know about it because you love Manchester. Um, but and all kinds of other uh, mank writers. And but the the pubs we went to were a bit meh. Yeah, really. Yeah. Where'd it, you go? Went to Rain Bar. Rain Bar. Yeah. Why Rain Bar? I don't know. I'm still not sure. I think it's because it was the weather was really crappy, and uh, she had to find places that had that could house 20 some odd people actually that's an issue when you're you're dealing with situations like that yeah yeah often the most interesting places aren't the places that can accommodate 20 literature like you know peveril of the peak or something yeah you know, you could, they couldn't even all fit in there i know, you know? and I, I imagine if the weather was better she would have taken us to the pev or or uh britons or something but you know yeah. and i went to the town hall tavern never been in there before oh that's a pretty cool one yeah yeah i like the was town good. Hall it tavern. was good and we went to like Sinclair's Oyster Bar, um, which is one of those places. That I like the pub. Like I like the idea of the pub, and it's amazing that they moved it, picked it up, and chucked it into onto a different place. But it's, it's rough, man. <laughs> yeah, it's slightly unsavory. Yeah, I haven't been there. It's one of those places that you go when you first meet, come to Manchester. Yeah, and then you just never go there again. No. <laughs> and that indeed, like I haven't been there for I don't know twelve yeah. years maybe. Yeah, and I like a rough pub. It's rough in the wrong way, though. It's rough in the wrong way, is correct. It's not rough in an interesting way. No. It's just rough in a kind of yucky yeah. way. Yeah, like there's a couple on Portland Street. What's that one? It's like the Monkey or something, where it's like the smallest bar in the world. The Circus Tavern. Circus Tavern. <laughs> I got it wrong again. <laughs> um, see, I'm so glad you're here. Uh, yeah, the Circus Tavern. Have you been in the Circus yeah, Tavern? Yeah, I've been a few times. Yeah, I've never been. It's, it? I mean, it's rough, but in a good way. Oh, yeah. Like it's yeah. old football oh. f- fans. That's on my list of paper. places to go. Yeah. Have you, ever, have you ever been to Mother Max? No. Oh, man. Is, is that in Manchester? It is in Manchester. It's on one of those really, really scratty back alleys behind Piccadilly um, that just looks really horrible. Yeah, um, most stuff does back there. It does. And We're such snobs. 
No, but I like these places. Okay, I will good. actually go to them. Right. Um, none of my friends will ever come with me, mm. but I like them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And there's always the millstone, of course. Yeah. Do you like the millstone? I've never been in, and my friend Simon's a great fan of the millstone, and he keeps threatening. He really, really wants to take me and me and Susie, my other friend, yeah. to go to karaoke night. There. We did a pub crawl uh-huh. uh, through the northern quarter, and the millstone was on it. And the karaoke was on. It's uh, always on. It's always karaoke hour there. It's not good. No? What no. was the scene like? It, it was, well, I mean, it's a, it, it was, it was karaoke. Yeah. In its There's no broadest form. It. Yeah. People singing terribly um, off their faces. Yeah. And thinking it's hilarious. And I don't know. I don't get it. Yeah. Karaoke is that, that thing where if it's really good, it's boring. And when it's terrible, it's unlisten- unlistenable. I had a really good karaoke experience in America when I was home the summer in Vermont mm. at my old favorite like hometown bar, Charlio's, which is like a honky-tonk redneck bar. Yeah. Um, me and my friend Scott, who I haven't seen for a long time, um, just decided to sing Close to You by the Carpenters on karaoke. Oh, my word. It was pretty special. Yeah. I, do you know what my go-to is? What? Uh, what's the Nick Cave one with... Um, I I don't know where my brain is tonight. See, Nick I Cave thought I Kylie would be Minogue. the one who I know. I'm oh, right as well. the red rose. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Ooh. Yeah, I do that one. Really? Mm. Well, I've got. I can't sing high notes, so I can do the low ones. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah, that's good. To so know. any kind of low monotone song, like Johnny Cash, I can sing the shit out of those as well. Oh, Johnny Cash. See, I I like to go Patsy Cline. Yeah. Um, Tammy Wynette. That Oof, kind of yeah wow. country. Yep. Yeah, that's Tammy Wynette. Tammy Wynette, Stand By Your Man is a yeah. classic for karaoke. Yeah. <laughs> so now you all know. This yeah. is so how great we, for your listeners. How did we manage to get to this karaoke? We're supposed to, to be talking books. about books and stuff. Nothing to do with books. Oh, well. Um, what is, uh, what are you doing next? What do you, what's, what's the next real story? The next real story, uh, we are trying to organize a Christmassy thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we usually do this with First Draft. Uh, Abby Hines night here in Manchester but they're kind of taking a break right now so mm-hmm. we're trying to put something together with bad language okay I don't know if that's gonna come off though because right. you know our lives are all really complicated mm. and booking a venue in Manchester is really complicated right for live lit nights so it may or may not happen okay but uh, yeah and then it's just we're into the new year and we've yeah. got some some things in the works but nothing firm yeah um, yeah so that's that now it's going to be a chat between me and Adele Stripe there there would ordinarily be an outro with me and Kate she doesn't know that yet I've not even told her that but uh, there isn't one this time because there's two bits of this discussion Adele and I have our initial interview and I can tell when I'm talking to her that she can't she's holding back she can't say a lot of things she had her book Black Teeth and a Brilliant Smile, Brilliant Smile uh, was published with a small independent publisher called Wrecking Ball in Yorkshire somewhere. And uh, it's been picked up by a major. So the first part of the first interview, the, the bulk of the interview is us talking about her being published by an independent publisher and about Andrea Dunbar, the focus of her book. And then later she calls me and said, tells me that she... Her book's been picked up by a major, so I call her and talk to her about that. So there's two bits coming up. Um, I think that's it, Kate. So I can go now? No, you can't. You're not allowed to say that. You have to pretend that you're actually enjoying yourself. <laughs> so I have to go now, but I'm enjoying myself so yeah, much, Yeah, I know. Rob. It's terrible, isn't it? Right. Okay, so don't listen to Kate, and now listen to Adele, and we will talk to you again at some other point. Maybe. Bye. secrets are all in there you just need to know where to look mm-hmm. to dig them out sure. so it's kind of a fascinating process for me is to have a subject and then dig really deep into it um, and so f- for the novel I mean I, the, the research took four years at least right. 
and it wasn't really until the final year that I started knowing what, what the, story the story was what style I was going to write it in mm -hmm. I'd written a few chapters up to that point but it wasn't kind of solid and then I started finding my way through it so I had all of this material um, and actually what I wrote was a very short novel uh, and it could have been enormous if I'd have used all of the material that I'd collected mm -hmm. but I thought she had, um, she had a short life and I thought I wanted to keep it tight and uh, certainly um, very pacey and I wanted it to be a, a novel that you could sit down and read over two pints. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's know. a fast reader. Well, it depends how, how quick you are. Mm. Yeah, you're either a, a <laughs> fast reader or a slow drinker. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <clears throat> but I was talking to Steve Fimbo about this idea of writing the two pint novel. <laughs> and um, we, had, we were talking about it online and I'd been reading some of the novels that and other stories have been publishing. Mm -hmm. And Yuri Herrera is one of the great contemporary Mexican novelists. He has come up on this podcast. This, this ah, must be the third or fourth time. Really? Yep. Okay, that is really interesting because mm -hmm. I wasn't sure if anybody had even read him. Yep. Um, but I bought, I bought his three novels and they're only 120 pages, 130 pages. And just, I could not put them down. It was kind of a masterclass in how to write a short novel. Mm -hmm. I also think people's attention spans are shorter mm -hmm. because we're faffing on the internet all Will the time. Will Self would agree with you. That's what he says. Okay. Um, but it doesn't mean that we still don't want to read stories, but we just want to read them in a different way. People will still sit down and watch Game of Thrones series 1 to 6, uh, but they'll watch it why. at an hour, an hour at a time, or they'll binge. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to reading, I wonder if the novel form is getting shorter, or it will get shorter. Yep. Um, that's my feeling. Well, Will Self it. says that the reason his novels don't sell very well now is because of attention spans of God. It's not because his writing's changed and nobody likes it anymore. It's because, you know, his, he, he, he didn't sell as many books. But he also said, he, his big thing was that, you know, uh, social media and like the, the fact that you've got mm. a phone in your pocket all the time that takes priority of everything. You can't uh, give that amount of attention to a, a, a big book. Yeah. But I would, I, and I, I'm kind of with you, I think that I think a lot of most book, big books shouldn't be big anyway, and I don't think that has anything to do with no. And also, whatever I, else I, I find on. it when I'm watching films that a lot of the older films are around the 90, 100 minute mark. Now that for me is the perfect length for yep. a film. Um, I can stretch it to a little bit longer than that, but yep. a lot of the modern films that I've watched are way too long. Yeah. And they could cut half an hour off them and they would be perfect. Mm -hmm. But half an hour, they're wasting my time making me sit there through it. I watched the, is it Manchester by the Sea? Oh, God. And there was a scene where the boat goes off in, into the distance and I thought, right, cut. Yes. That's it. That's the end. And then they tacked on another 25 minutes mm -hmm. onto the end. Now, the editor in me finds that infuriating yeah. because there was no need for it mm -hmm. and I don't know why they need to stretch them out so mm -hmm. long but I wonder if the novel form is kind of similar it's yeah. kind of um, I think maybe some filmmakers obviously like Fellini yeah. um, made films that were three hours long and you don't yeah. even notice they're three hours long when yeah. you watch them I can't tell if novels are getting shorter or my, if, or my attention span is getting shorter because I'm getting older or because I'm too addicted to my phone or, or whatever. <laughs> but I cannot, if a book is more than 350 pages, it just, just doesn't sigh. get read. Yeah. Yeah. I get through like the first couple of chapters. And I'm like, nah. And I, when I was a kid, though, I would read them, you know, a thousand page novels. Yeah. And it, without a, a second thought. So what's all that about? Uh, well, they were shit novels for a start. But, <laughs> um, See, I've just got this. Mm-hmm. Which is Petit Fleur. Small flower. Yeah, by <laughs> IOC. I don't know whether that's Yoshi or IOC. I don't know how to pronounce mm. it. Havilio. Yep. And it's 
on under the stories. Yeah. And do you get money for every time you mention under no, the no, stories? No, no, no. It's just they've sent me this because mm-hmm. I'm doing an event with them at Waterstones. Oh, right. Stones they are about, very good, by the way. In about three weeks. Yes. Yeah. But this is 120 pages. I can Ideal. just do that in one sitting. Yeah. And then I feel invigorated. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm interested in at the yeah. moment. It's the short I, so novel. Am I. I, <laughs> I find it quite exciting. But I can't understand. Like I, like I said, I don't know if it's because I'm just less forgiving as a reader or... Maybe. Just older. I don't know. Or maybe you feel like they're wasting my time now. Yeah. Why, why have we digressed into this yeah. section? But I, I, used to be a lot to more, be I used to be a lot more forgiving of... You've you know, read more, though. Faff. Yeah. Yes. Maybe. You've read more, so you're more Maybe. cynical. Well, I'm more cynical, and definitely more cynical. <laughs> that's that's without question. A hundred times more cynical. And I was born cynical, so, like, I mean, I'm almost un... <laughs> un what's the word I'm looking for? Unbearable. <laughs> right. We should probably talk about your book a little bit more. Why Andrea Dunbar? Well, I um, remember... When I was a teenager, I had a little black and white television in my bedroom. It had a dial on the front, you know, like one of the proper old-fashioned one. And I... How old are you? I'm 40. See, I'm older than you, so I remember that. So I had a, a pair of headphones, and when my parents went to sleep, I would sneak the telly on and put the headphones on, and I would watch Channel 4. Right. Now, when Channel 4 first started, it was really exciting. And they would <laughs> play art house movies and all sorts of kind of challenging um, TV. Um, and I would watch it late at night, and probably from being about 10 or 11, I think. Mm-hmm. And I remember... Liberal parents? No, no. <laughs> they, they were asleep. Right. So they would never have let me watch them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they, they didn't know yeah. that that's what I was doing um, so I watched all sorts of things I should that were f- just unsuitable for a child my age mm-hmm. uh, which I found really exciting yeah. so I'd be up watching these, these kind of films yep. um, but I remember watching Rita Sue and Bob 2 um, okay. on TV and it must have been what 1989 or something so like that you're asking the wrong guy but yeah, go on yeah so I I watched that, but I also remember seeing a documentary with Andrea Dunbar that was on Yorkshire Television, and it was called In Praise of Bad Girls. And she was interviewed by Kay Meller, who's another writer from Yorkshire who wrote Band of Gold. And I remember watching it in this kind of deep recess of my memory. And that is uh, kind of my earliest memory of Andrea Dunbar, is kind of watching that mm-hmm. but I was also a really big fan of Sheila Delaney mm-hmm. when I was younger and I wanted to be a playwright and I, I, I was a fan of Andrea and mm-hmm. Sheila and I wrote my first play when I was about 16, 17 and it was shit <laughs> um, of course and, it was and it's not going to be good it, is it? no no of course it wasn't but I yeah. thought I could be them right because they what, were immediately young, young yeah. working class like female playwrights yep. from the north of England mm-hmm. I thought I could do that right but I couldn't right um, and I remember having a conversation with a woman called Jude Kelly who was the head of the West Yorkshire Playhouse and my mum was a hairdresser and she knew someone who knew someone who knew her and she rang me up one day and I must have been about 15 or 16 who rang you up? Um, this, the head of the West Yorkshire okay. Playhouse yep. and she gave me some advice on how I might become a playwright wow, that um, was nice of her she didn't have to do that yeah. she'd spent half an hour talking wow. to me and I remember her doing it and she had that kind of effect on lots of young people in Leeds at that mm-hmm. time and there's a lot of love and respect for her now because everybody is in their 40s mm-hmm. but Jude kind of helped them um, at some point early on in yeah. their life um, but I didn't know anybody who'd been to university and I didn't know how I would get there right. I wasn't from I grew up in a house without books Sheesh. Um, but we 
our house had a really good record collection mm -hmm. so my parents were into music and I was lucky mm -hmm. that I had these great records mm -hmm. that would provide me with an education sure so my mum was a big Scott Walker fan mm -hmm. and I had all of I grew up listening to the Jacques Brel songs that Scott Walker sang so next and Jackie I mean they're kind of unbelievable songs the mm -hmm. lyrics are incredible yep um, and our family, even though they weren't readers, they told stories. Mm -hmm. Very rich storytelling tradition almost, where you would hear the stories of the family, of great-great-uncle so-and-so, mm -hmm. and all the crazy things he did, and the woman who lived over the road, mm -hmm. all the tragedy that happened gossip. to her, and all of the gossip, and, and people would talk, mm -hmm. and my nana would talk and tell me all of these stories. So even though I didn't have a literary upbringing, it was kind of rich in other ways. Yeah. I always wonder why, and this is such a, a, a foreigner looking, with no real knowledge of what it was really like in, in the North. Yeah. In the, I would say, I was going to say the bad times, but in the 80s, mm. basically. Like, I always wondered why people stayed in those situations especially young people like why would you why do people why are people so connected to their hometowns um i think certainly the i mean i left yeah so i'm probably not the person right fair ask. enough yeah um well this this the know. reason i bring this up is because in your book andrea dunbar is constantly pining for home yeah and that was a part of the book that I just was like, what? Why? Like she, this amazing thing because is happening to you. she felt safe there. Really? She, yeah, she felt safe there. It didn't seem like that when she was home. It felt like kind of a dangerous, well, maybe not dangerous, but mm. not as safe as the... No, but it, it, it was for her. She felt like she knew everybody mm -hmm. and her family were there. Mm -hmm. And she may have had fallings out with her dad and whatever, mm -hmm. but her mum was on the estate and... There was a certain sense of security that it gave her. Mm -hmm. The Buttershaw was one of the most deprived estates I, I in know. the north of yeah. England at I that looked it time. Up. <laughs> uh, and now, it, it, thanks to Andrew Dunbar's writing, it is, well, millions were spent on it mm -hmm. in the 1990s because of Rita Sue and Bob Jeez. too because they saw that film and they realized the conditions that people were living in and really? they had to Is that do, right? they had to do something about it they had to and she had drawn attention to it well uh, and the wow. rest the rest of the the country were just thinking well surely that is that isn't true. Mm -hmm. This is a fictionalized account of mm -hmm. life up there. Yep. But it wasn't. She was recording it, recording what she saw. She was a yep. whistleblower. Yeah. So I think for Andrea. And plus, it's an easy win for a politician. This isn't cynical me coming through again. Mm. As long as they make that town better and go, oh, look, we're, they can use that as a, a beacon to say, oh, look how much better the North is now. Yeah, well, actually, what, what Labour did was um, created a Pathfinder scheme, and they um, spent millions, if not billions, on doing up key estates in the mm -hmm. north of England, so from Liverpool over to Hull. And what they did was put new windows in, new kitchens, central heating, um, new showers and bathrooms and actually like new railings at the front of the house uh, paved everything mm -hmm. properly new schools actually it was a good thing mm -hmm. and I go up to Buttershaw now and I don't think it looks any different to any other council estate yeah. I don't feel unsafe there um, I'm not from there I'm from yeah. Tadcaster I'm from a shitty brewery town Right. a different kind of place but still quite isolated yeah um, but I don't get that sense of feeling like yeah. people don't want me there or they don't want to talk yeah, to me. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've encountered a lot of hospitality there. Yeah. nice. So why write, and I, I didn't want to bring Ben into this, but he's done, your partner has done a very similar thing where you've written a fictional account about a real person. Mm. Why not write a biography? For me... I chose to write what I call, what is effectively a non-fiction novel in many ways. Okay. Um, Would you call it creative non-fiction? 
Yeah, perhaps it is. Mm. Perhaps it is. Okay. But it's um, using fact to create fiction. Now, Andrea Dunbar created drama from her real life. Mm -hmm. So in a certain sense, she fictionalized her own life mm -hmm. for the stage. Sure. But it's still, I, I, that's still, I, that's still, the, the, like, I mean, Rita Sue and Bob 2 didn't happen. Like, that's, that did. was, did it? Yeah. That's a real story? Yeah. Oh, right. <laughs> oh, I didn't realize that. Really? Yes. Okay, fair enough. Okay, so, so she, is she one of the characters then? Yes. Oh, for God's sake, I'm <laughs> such an idiot. Anyway. Yes. <laughs> Fine. So that's all. Okay, so you know, I got you. Even so, though so the dialogue may so, be enhanced yep. and, and some of the situations. So that, uh, okay, so. Would you say that you kind of did this book as an homage to the way she works then? Uh, yeah, but also there have been some representations of Andrea already. So Clio Bernard made a film about her called The Arbor, and that was using verbatim. So actors mouthed uh, tape recordings of interviews that the director wow. had done okay. with her friends and family. But The Arbor was more about the family and all of their disagreements over what actually happened. Okay. Um, but it really focused on what happened after Andrea died. Okay. So I saw that there was a hole there in terms of... Um, there was lots of press features that had been written about her and um, there was lots of interest in her and obviously she'd written the plays but nobody had ever actually written her story down before Okay. now when I came to the point of making that decision what is this beast going to be mm -hmm. <laughs> is this story a traditional biography or is it something else mm -hmm. do I do something more creative with it yep I started writing it in both ways. Okay. So I did actually start writing a conventional biography. Right, okay. What I found was that that standard cradle-to-grave account was actually didn't do her justice in terms of the kind of energy of her life and the energy of her work. So um, one of the other big problems that I had was that I couldn't prove many... Of, of the, the of the the rumours because it was based on hearsay or unreliable evidence, I could not say right okay categorically that that was fact, mm -hmm. um, and so fiction becomes the way in which you can explore some of that okay. in a roundabout way. Sure. So for me, then thinking about Capote's rules for the non-fiction novel. Um, and started to use that as a way of exploring this mountain of research. Well, um, I can't remember all of them. Okay, but the, the gist. Give me the head. gist. So one is to um, you have you, you write from a third person mm -hmm. point of view. Okay. The narrator does not get involved in the story. Mm-hmm. So um, there is a narrative voice, but mm -hmm. you as the writer do not appear right. in the story itself. Mm -hmm. um, and it's about choosing a subject that will last throughout and be, be interesting to you for the duration of the time that it okay. takes you uh, to write the novel. Sure. Uh, and one of the other things that Capote did that I thought was quite interesting was he didn't use one of these. Mm -hmm. He didn't use tape recorders. Oh, so he just... Oh, so he did interviews and yeah. just... He relied on the fact that he... He wouldn't embellish because he wouldn't know if it was true yes. for a fact. And he yeah. would just think, well, that's how I remember how it. How I remember ah, it. Ah, yeah. that's quite clever. And he learned this, apparently, when he was interviewing Marlon Brando. It was this technique. Mm -hmm. And Brando refused to have a tape recorder mm -hmm. uh, in, in this interview that he was doing. And so he, he learned how to kind of memorize these sections. Now, I didn't learn how to memorize it, but I could remember the, the kind of bones of what was said. Mm -hmm. And so I would go out and talk to people. Mm -hmm. I would go into rough pubs in yep. Bradford and talk to people. Well, it must be and difficult. I'm when not going to get my tape recorder yeah, out or yeah, a notepad. Yeah, yeah. I need to just sit and talk to them and then afterwards sure. I try and remember and right. what, what was said. Okay. It's difficult when your main subject is dead, though. Must be. 
is. Well, difficult and also liberating, I suppose, in a weird way, because... Well, you can't libel the dead. Yeah, exactly. What? How about her family? Like, did they... Have they read the book, do you know? Um, they all have copies of it. Yeah. Um, I know her sister read it. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't asked the others, but I are you have afraid, met them. Are you afraid that they might no, come up with No, actually, um, because I've been quite open with them about mm-hmm. what I was doing, yep. and they were really helpful. Um, sure. I went out drinking with them, and it was actually through sitting and talking to them that I started to understand what she was like what she was really like Mm. and also how she talked yeah because getting the voice was really hard and I couldn't do that until the very end yeah because the family were quite tight-knit and they have a certain way of talking to each other sure and when her sisters sat down with me I could pick up the ticks in the speech right and so that made it into the novel um that that particular way of talking that she had hmm very interesting yeah so it was kind of a, it was a fascinating process to go through um, but really scary because I I felt like I was an outsider going into that world mm-hmm. going onto that estate and I wanted to do it in the most respectful way that yep. I could and I think I have done that yeah I so it's not a like, David Peace thing where it's well, basically you know the entertainment above all I, w- I whether it destroys it, his character, well, basically, his main character, basically. It, I think, I mean, I am a fan of David Peace, mm. and there are elements of what I do, yeah, which I like David Peace, mm-hmm. but I don't think Black Teeth and a Brilliant Smile is quite like the Damned United. Definitely not, not even close. It's it's kind of a, a bit of a different, yeah. a different book. To I thought I thought the Damned United. It felt like he had an agenda from the start, to me. And the, yeah. the problem is, I lived in Nottingham as well, so Brian Clough is a, as a god. Yes. And from the second I landed there, it's like, oh, you know who Brian Clough is? No. Oh well, here, <laughs> th- let me tell you who he is, so you go back home yeah. and spread the word of Clough. <laughs> but uh, so when I started reading that book, I thought, whoa, this guy, like, this is a, it's. Oh, it's very. Pa- he's a very powerful writer, David. He is. But I always think. I, I find it quite hard to read his books because it's like a death metal. Mm. It's like each paragraph is like listening to an album of thrash metal. I feel assaulted mm-hmm. by his words. Yeah. I feel beaten up yeah. by his writing. I mean, that's a testament really to the power of what he does. Yes, but I don't understand why he needs to write that way about real people. Well, it did get him into trouble. I think gratefully so. Johnny Giles sued him. Did he? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what you get. Really? Did he win? Johnny yeah. Giles? He yeah. did, yeah. Because it was... See, that's the tricky thing about what, um, but I, I, what he does I, and what you do, about, I think. I had to really sort of... I, I considered all of that. Yeah. When I approached how to write this book. I think involving the family is a good idea. Like what, the way you did it. Um... Yeah, I, I had to do it for my own conscience mm-hmm. as well because I didn't want to exploit her mm-hmm. um, and I wanted to treat her with respect. Yeah, but the other side of that coin is making uh, being too nice to her as well, though, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, but also you can't make it a hagiography. No. So equally, there were things that I had to put in there that I was really uncomfortable with putting in. Give me an example. Um, uh, there were certain scenes in there that I found really hard to write. Mm-hmm. I knew they had happened, and certainly the scenes of domestic violence mm-hmm. with Yusuf, for yep. example, at the beginning. Um, but I that doesn't make her look bad. No, it doesn't. That makes him look bad. But then there were other things that she had done or said, and mm-hmm. some of the language that was used, and various things like that, took me out of my comfort zone. Mm-hmm. But I felt like the book needed to have that in, in order for it to have integrity. Definitely. I do see, like in your book, though, I think I've. When I read it, I thought Andrew Dunbar felt more of a victim to me than yeah. someone who was doing nasty things. Yeah, it felt like it was the people around her more or less. Like she was, she's definitely sabotaging herself definitely. in a big way. She did that, but she didn't do that to anybody else. It wasn't like her. She was never going and hurting anyone else. No, she wasn't. In particular, she was nasty to a few people, but you, you know, people that probably deserve she's it. Really difficult. Mm-hmm. She was a difficult character. Mm-hmm. And, from what I gathered from the people who I spoke to, I mean, she was m- the most difficult writer at the Royal Court. 
Mm. By a million huh. miles, that, but that's that not comes bad. through. <laughs> <laughs> that comes through in your book, loud and clear. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and it, if there was no drama in a situation, mm-hmm. she would make it happen. Yeah. So, you know, she was quite confrontational mm-hmm. and stubborn, and could be really difficult. But that's kind of part of what made her yeah. the person that she was. Plus, I think it's it's the fact of, of a working class person looking through the bullshit, seeing through all the and crap she saw through of, like, it. Some, yeah, of course. She, she, would do. It, it, she was, and that really unnerved people mm-hmm. because she, if they started bullshitting her, she knew, mm-hmm. and she'd tell them. Yeah. So that that was unnerving for a lot of people in the theatre world. Yeah, and know. I think well, if you, like, <laughs> as a working class person, especially if someone's telling you you're great, you don't believe, you mm. never believe she them. She never believed them. She no. thought, what do they want? Yeah, exactly. The scam. <laughs> yeah. Even when they fly, like bring her down to London, yeah, and are giving her, you know, giving her everything. Yeah. basically, she still didn't believe that it was right to the end, yeah. really. Yeah, and that's probably what contributed to her downfall in a way. Yeah, I mean, towards the end of her life, she wasn't yeah. working under any theatre. Mm-hmm. She was working actually packing speaker boxes hmm. in a mill. Gosh, and she was living on social security. She was back on the estate. And she wrote her final play. Well, actually, it wasn't a play. It was a screenplay. Mm-hmm. And it was called The Moneylenders. And it was a sequel to Rita Sue and Bob Two. Right. And it was rejected mm. 12 days before she died. And it's the great kind of missing part of the jigsaw mm-hmm. of Andrea Dunbar. Have you we, read it? No. Mm. Nobody knew what happened to it. Oh, it really? Vanished. Gosh. Really? Yeah. Wow. So I hope that one day somebody will find it. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if it was terrible, to be honest, because she was probably in quite a state at that point, wasn't she? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's one of those things where you you almost you're almost glad it doesn't come out. Like if you look at um, oh God, To Kill a Mockingbird or whatever, like the, you know. Yeah. They found the second one. Yeah. And thought, yeah. Oh, let's, let's let's publish it. Yeah. What's the point? Yeah. Why did they do that? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I I kind of feel the same way about that with Andrew Dunbar's yeah. thing. That. Yeah. Well, I had that in the back of my mind. Yeah. That actually, if there was. It was Oscar Levenstein who read the, the screenplay, mm-hmm. and he was the person who kind of got Rita Sue and Bob Two made, but also he worked with Sheila Delaney and Joe Orton. Mm-hmm. He was kind of one of the great directors of the Royal Court sure. and various kitchen sink classic films. Oscar yep. was behind them, so if he couldn't see anything in it. Mm-hmm then I'm sure if there was something in there he would have found it and yep. would have said look keep working at it but he outright rejected it right very interesting mm. have you um, thought about writing like a, a novel that's just you know straight out of your head no I can't do that you don't think I don't so, work you don't like that you don't think it's not worth a try I can't it's why not I'm just not that kind of writer it seems quite a I have to have facts really then I can do something well, with why that. don't you do some research on somebody <laughs> and then just put a different name on it and then make your own story around it? I, no, I just I, I, I find my own imagination is uh, I think I'd drive myself mad if I just wrote things completely from the imagination. Mm-hmm. So I need to have some grounding and some context, mm-hmm. and that's kind of what inspires me in a way. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of now. I'm at the point where I need... I've got a few ideas. Mm-hmm. I need to spend a bit of time researching those ideas sure. and see if there's enough in them mm-hmm. to justify committing to a novel. Okay. So that's kind of where I'm at with it. Yeah. you've uh, This novel's come out with Wrecking Ball Press. Yeah. yeah. Russ Litton's yeah. Uh, new venture, really? No. Is it not new? No, it's been going 20 years. Has it? Yeah. Oh, for God's sake. How come I've never heard of it? Okay, Wrecking Ball Press is kind of... because it's, it's Yorkshire, isn't it? It's the other side of the Pennines. It's Hull as well. Yeah, oh, so. God. Way <laughs> on the other side of the Pennines. Ben's first novel came out on Wrecking Ball Press. Oh, I didn't know that. And it was called The Book of Fuck. <laughs> right, okay. Um, and also Tony O'Neill, who um, is... Because we were the brutalist poets. Yeah. So Tony O'Neill's first novel, Digging the Vein, came okay. out on Wrecking Ball Press. Sure. Um, and... Shane Rhodes is the publisher and he's Mm -hmm. been doing this for years and he does a lot of first novels and he does poetry collections sure he did a great book by Dan Fante short story Mm -hmm. stories he did a really good book on Bukowski by Jules Smith Mm -hmm. Um, 
he's put out various books over sure. the years and sometimes he publishes he's a bit like the books look amazing they're like black sparrow press they're like yeah. they're beautiful mm-hmm. to look at them yep um and russ i think has just been kind of working as an editor mm-hmm. uh, for wrecking ball and he signed my book sure and and and, and was adamant that I had to sign to Wrecking Ball. Mm-hmm. Um, within half an hour of him finishing it, he picked right. up the phone and oh wow, that's quite good. And said, "You have to come with us. You have to let us do this." Did you try shipping it around to uh, mainstream publishers? No, no, just went straight to Wrecking Ball. Yeah. Wow, why? Um, because I had no confidence. Ah, and I didn't. I think everybody. I thought everybody would reject it, and I didn't. So want you did, that's a preemptive strike, though, isn't it? What do you mean by Taking that? it out of the... Just saying, uh, people will reject it, so I'm not going to send it. Yeah, I just thought they would hate it, and they wouldn't get it. Really? Um, and I... So you're you're allergic yeah. to money? It's not that. I would, you know, it's <laughs> not I, that. Did I mention I'm a cynic? <laughs> <laughs> I just didn't have any self-belief. Mm. And I just thought everybody would turn it down. Right. And I didn't even send it to an agent. Gosh. Uh, because I just didn't want to be rejected. Wow, because I really? thought that's what would happen. Mm. And I thought everybody would hate it. And, okay. and Wrecking Ball loved it. Sure. So I just went with them. Okay, so now that that's <laughs> happened, uh, with your next one, but which now, might never happen. This is the thing. Okay. okay, so I had no confidence mm-hmm. whatsoever in it. I just felt like I'd written this weird book mm-hmm. and nobody would like it. It's a weird Yorkshire book. Mm-hmm. And then now and then I got an agent um, after you know that happens a lot and I've got a really brilliant agent actually who has been kind of looking after me because it's it's a new a new thing for me it's a new process going into this world of publishing yep and um, which agency is it Aitken Alexander. Oh, hello. So um, Matthew Hamilton oh, is my agent. See, I, I pretend I know who agents are, but I he's no great. Idea. Okay. He does like loads of rock stars. And okay. He does like Shane McGowan. Mm-hmm. He does Sean Ryder. He does people like Brick Smith. Right. Um, and uh, so he's a total rock and roll guy. Yes. Um, so he wants another bit of creative nonfiction from you, then. He doesn't want anything from me. He's I don't just... understand. That's what agents are supposed to do, aren't they? They're supposed to go. Give up that arts writing bullshit and write something that makes me some cash. <laughs> no, no, no. He's not like that at all. But he's um, is yeah, he he's, broke? <laughs> no, he just leaves me to kind of get on with whatever I'm doing and and looks after me. So he's 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 nice. But um, yeah, now it's on the Gordon Burn shortlist. Brilliant. So so it it and lots your of book people, is yeah. And, and so it's made the final six Gosh. for the Gordon Byrne Prize yep. this year. Good. Um, I'll pretend I know what that is. Uh, it's all right. You can look it up afterwards. Okay, fine. I'm not going to explain it. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Don't explain it. it it's a it's prize. A, it's an it's annual prize. It's You win five grand. Okay, And you can stay at Gordon Byrne's house for a month, I think. Oh, uh, right. Okay. Great. And they have um, this year... The shortlist is five female writers and one male writer. That's good. Which is really exciting. Yeah. Because it's been quite male heavy over the past few years. Like everything. Yeah. So this yeah. year there's Gwendolyn Riley. Uh huh. She's um, good. Denise Mina. Don't know. Um, uh, Katka Kasabova. Okay. Um, me, uh, Lara Pawson, mm-hmm. and David Keenan. Tell you what, if you beat Gwendolyn Riley, you've done well. She's amazing. <laughs> she is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Great. Um, that's all I need. Thank you very much. That's good. That's yeah. good. I can hear you now. That's yeah, better. good. Okay. <laughs> yes. Um, the Obviously, the main reason I'm calling is because I want an update on your book. I want yeah. to know how exciting your life is now that you're, you've sold out. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, well, when we spoke last, things were in the process of being sorted out, but I couldn't really talk to it, talk to you about it mm-hmm. um, publicly. Um, hence our discussion after you had turned the tape recorder <laughs> off. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm glad. <laughs> hence, hence why you're calling me now. And yes. we can repeat that conversation. <laughs> yeah. 
So how did, okay, so take me through it again. How did it happen? Who contacted you? Basically, for people who are listening, you were published by Wrecking Ball, which is an independent press. Yep. I think you spoke on the podcast about getting a, this hotshot agent. Yes. Who helped you. I can't remember. Did we talk about that on the podcast? Yes, we did. Okay, yeah, right. Did. Yeah, yeah. And then he's managed to get you. Well, I'll let you tell me. Well, I'll tell you how it happened. So we put um, the Wrecking Ball Press edition out, Black Teeth, and um, it kind of snowballed very quickly. And lots of people online, uh, certainly on social media, once they got a copy of the book, uh, and obviously it's quite a beautiful edition, that first edition with mm-hmm. foil cover, um, people were posting photographs of it all over the internet, so all over Instagram and Twitter, and um, people were talking about it, and lots of writers were talking about it, and I think this attracted the attention of a few editors and publishers who bought the book, and one got in contact um, after she had read it and mm. loved, loved, loved what she read and wanted to buy it. Great. So, um, I didn't put the book out there. Um, it just kind of fell into place, really. Okay. So who was it that bought it then? Okay, it was um, Ursula Doyle. Okay. And Ursula used to be the um, publisher at Viraga. Mm-hmm. And I always thought if there was any place that any publishing house um that i would have taken this book to it was virago Mm -hmm. Um, obviously they are kind of legendary women's press um Mm -hmm. and i kind of thought that would be the natural home for it um anyway ursula used to be the publisher at virago and before that she was the publisher at picador Mm -hmm. for years and granta so she's obviously she knows what um, she's doing yeah yeah and she got in contact and was just absolutely loved the book and wondered if we would be interested in signing it to her new imprint which is called fleet okay so fleet is part of little brown book group and it's quite a small list because it's it's early days really i think they started in 2015 2016 and they only publish eight books a year. Okay, so I, wow. I like that because it's a small imprint. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've recently published the Colson Whitehead book, The Underground Oh, Railroad, wow. Okay, that's a good book. Which is just fantastic. Yeah. Um, they've also done the, the Claire Massoud book as well and various other, other interesting tomes that have been sent to me. Yeah. Um, And I quite liked the idea of being with a smaller imprint because I thought um, they would be able to handle the book um, in a way that was right. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's always that kind of worry if you're with a bigger publishing house and they're putting out 60 books a year, Mm -hmm. that you just get lost in it. Um, Sure. You know, so so that appealed to me. Um, So it's more kind of boutique style. Mm -hmm. Right. and Ursula is a huge Andrea Dunbar fan. She absolutely loved it and um, made me an offer through my agent. Mm-hmm. And we accepted. Great. So, so that's that's where I'm at with it now, which is exciting. Yeah. That I'm kind of in the midst of doing my second edition corrections and getting everything ready, getting the cover ready. Mm. Um, and it will be relaunched effectively uh, in November. Wow. That's a quick turnaround. Very quick. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> right, okay. So what, when you say second edition changes, updates, edits, yeah. what yeah, it... So just just like a few little tweaks here and there so i mean obviously nothing to the story they're not making you add it oh no no it's just um a few a few little sometimes you just miss the odd little thing Mm -hmm. and and when you read that first you know because you've kind of you've written the book and you've read it so many times and then you're sick of looking at the bloody thing Mm -hmm. and then actually when you go back to it a few months later and you read it there might just be the odd word Mm. ah shit (laughs) I'm excited about yeah. that. Yeah. What do you think that's... Like, I, I, I don't know about 
about sales and stuff, but how like exposure is probably the best, the biggest difference that's that's going to happen now that you're with a, a big publisher. I think the the biggest difference between working with a very small indie like Wrecking Ball because they are very very small mm-hmm. on the scale of of, of indies mm-hmm. uh, compared to working with somebody like Fleet, which is part of Little Brown is that Little Brown have this kind of machine um, in place uh, mm-hmm. to, to help make your book fly. Yeah. Whereas when you're working with a very, very small indie, it's it's hard graft and you have to do most of it yourself. Yeah. And there's something lovely about that because that's the world I come from, really, sort of DIY underground music world. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, that, that wasn't a difficult process for me. Yeah. To be kind of making all the packages and posting everything out and sending postcards and mm-hmm. doing all that side of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's more of a struggle when you're um, on a little Norton publisher um, because yep. all of the media live in London, don't they? Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, yes. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> uh, uh, so that, that's tough, and that's tough for any Northern Indian. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's basically all I wanted to talk to you about today. It sounds very exciting and I'm very jealous. <laughs> you Make sure you come back on the podcast when you're big and famous. That's great. Thank you very much, Adele. Oh, Rob, it's lovely to talk to you.